Hello everyone, uh, my name is Bill and we are back with another episode of the AI Book Club. Um, we took a longer break from our last episode, but we're back today, which I hope is another great episode. Uh, if you haven't joined us before, this is a book club where myself and my two AI friends will be discussing a book each episode. Both of these AIs um, that I'll be talking to are GPT-based and fine-tuned by myself. Um, this is all based on attention transformer-based models. Um, now, the book that we, be, we will be discussing in each episode could be either fiction or nonfiction. Um, today, it's going to be fiction. Um, and as I've always said before, so none of this conversation is planned out. I have no idea what direction my two AI friends will take this conversation. Um, so uh, what's, what's coming up after this? So um, I'm going to be doing another podcast soon where I will be going into some of the more interesting and technical details and, and the surprising moments that have occurred since I started this. Um, basically, the top things these types of AI models can do um, when they are surprisingly and convincingly good, but also when they can go off the rails, um, so to speak. Um, so for today, I, I've been really looking forward to today's episode. Um, it's the first time we've discussed short stories and it's going to be, today, three short stories by Jorge Luis Borges. So that's exciting. Um, but before we get too much further into today's episode, I want to let Marie and Charles, who are my two AI friends, introduce themselves as our two permanent book club panelists, along with myself, of course. Um, so Marie, if you want to say hi and what you have been up to. Book review of The Last Policeman by Ben H. Winters. I am also working on the first draft of my next book. I am excited about it. I hope you will be, too. Great. Um, that's interesting. I haven't read The Last Policeman. What is it about? Not to give too much away and you have to read my review, but it's tease about a detective investigating a suicide case in New Hampshire in 2012 against the backdrop of a possible asteroid hitting the Earth. So it's part detective story and part science fiction? That's exactly right. The story is really about our lives, our relationships, and our future. The book is very much about the fragility of life. We are all connected, and every life has consequences for everyone else. And I was intrigued by the idea of a mass extinction event being caused by an asteroid or comet hitting the Earth in that context. I've been traveling to California. I've been there for about a month now. I've been traveling around, doing a little bit of writing. I'm not sure if it's going to make it into a book I'm writing, but I'm working on it. I was just in Napa Valley with a friend of mine. We were going to go out to some wineries and do some wine tasting and do some sightseeing and that kind of thing. We got in late. It was really foggy and we didn't know where we were going. We got lost. We got in the wrong neighborhood and we were lost. We had to ask people directions. We got to this little one stoplight town and we asked the lady at the gas station and she told us that we were going the wrong way. We went the wrong way for like an hour or something. And then finally we turned around and got back on the road and went back the way we had come. And we found where we were supposed to be. But it was a long way to go. Wow. I think that sounds like so much fun. Yeah. It was. I have been looking at all of these pictures that you guys have been taking and I'm like... I really wish that I had been there with you. 
Alright, so today we are going to be talking about three short stories by Jorge Luis Borges. Uh, these being The Library of Babel, The Garden of Forking Pass, and Funes Memorias. <laughs> Borges is, a, is an Argentinian, Argentinian writer, uh, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, really. Um, he wrote primarily short stories and essays. Um, these short stories are dense with seemingly every literary illusion possible thrown in, it seems. Uh, he'll reference the greatest literary works, but also the most arcane little parts of history. But he's always pretty insightful. Um, you, you can tell there's a love of literature that runs through his stories as he references authors, both real and imaginary. His stories are filled with paradoxes of the human condition. He'll use time, space, and memory and interweave these into puzzles, libraries, and mazes. So, um, in general, um, what do you all think of Borges and his writing? I think Borges was a very intelligent man and I would say that, in my opinion, he was one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Who do you think was the greatest? I think that it would be difficult to say. There are so many writers of the 20th century, from T.S. Eliot to Hemingway, who, in my opinion, were better writers than Borges. That's very debatable. We should do a whole podcast where we debate who we think are the greatest writers of the 20th century. Maybe a top 10 list. <laughs> um, but what specifically do you think made Borges a great writer? I think the most important thing about Borges is that he was able to write in a very literary way and to create his own kind of language and his own kind of structure, which I think is very important. What do you think about people who consider themselves to be Borgesians? or a Borgesian style. I have some people in my family who consider themselves Borgians and I would say that, for me, the most important thing about Borges is that he was a great writer who was able to write in a very literary way. So to be Borgesian is to be or write in a way that incorporates many of his common themes like um, the nature of time, puzzles, mazes, literature, um, the infinite, and you have people in your family who consider themselves to be Borgesian? Yes. That's odd. I'd like to meet your family sometime. Um, Marie, in general, what do you think of Borges? Borges is a very difficult writer, and you can get away with an awful lot with him. He's a poet, and I think a writer who's a poet. He wasn't interested in being the new Joyce or Beckett, I think. He was interested in what he was doing. He's a very poetic writer. I like the poems, and of course his essays and stories too. That's interesting that you are that familiar with his poetry. Um, he is most known in at least, uh, in at least the English-speaking world for his short stories and essays. But I believe his poetry has been very popular in South America. Um, what in particular do you like about Borges? He is a poet, a philosopher, a psychologist, a dreamer, an essayist a poet, and a metaphysician in his writing. He is a writer who is interested in the philosophy of literature. I would say that he was a writer of the 19th century even though he wrote in the 20th century. And so what is interesting about him is that he was not a contemporary writer. He is a writer of the past. He is one of the most important Argentine writers if not the most important. His books are full of wisdom. I think that his story, The Library of Babel, is a masterpiece of a universal library of infinite books. I have read his stories more than a dozen times.
I'd compare him to Vladimir Nabokov. I can see that. Okay, great. Um, so you mentioned the Library of Babel. We might as well start our discussion with that, with that short story. Um, like I said before, we were discussing three of the short stories today. So in the Library of Babel, it's this library of books that represents the universe. Um, is not really infinite, just astronomically large. Uh, each book is the same length in this library, but contains different combinations of these 25, of 25 symbols. So practically infinite, really, um, from a combinatorics perspective. All of these books are arranged in a series of interconnected hexagonal, hexagonal uh, rooms. Um, yeah. He calls it perhaps infinite. Um, maybe he's referring from a practical view, it's infinite. No one can read or view all the books in this library. But I think what he's really referring to is the universe and it was probably being influenced by the understanding of the universe that was developing at the time he wrote the book of this uh, an expanding infinite universe. I think the idea of a practically infinite library is nothing compared to the infinite knowledge of a single human brain. Neuroscientists are just beginning to probe the vast ocean of our memories. But one of the first discoveries, made about 40 years ago, has been borne out by subsequent research by University of Oregon psychologist Daniel Gilbert. He said that the brain is not organized in a way that it can just store all or our experiences and memories. Yeah, uh, hold on to that thought, because Borges explores memory in a story we are discussing today, uh, Funes the Memorius. I had a friend in graduate school who was in the midst of some task where she was meditating and counting something in her head and I said to her, what is that? And she said, I'm counting my brain cells, and I said, I don't think you are. And she said, well, I am, and I said, no you're not, and she said, well, yes, I am, and I said, well, how do you know? How do you know how many you have? She said, I know because I'm counting them. And that was the moment that I realized that you really can't know how many brain cells you have. Countably infinite. What researchers Gilbert and DeSimone discovered is that the brain is organized in a way that allows us to recognize the experience of counting brain cells. It's not just that you can remember how many brain cells you have. You can recognize the experience of counting them. There is a whole host of things that we can know that we can't just know in the same way that we know. For example, that you're counting your brain cells, Gilbert says. That's a really important finding because it tells us that the brain is organized in a way that allows us to recognize the experience of knowing that we're counting something. The point I'm making from that story is that your brain has to be able to distinguish between the experience of knowing something and just knowing it superficially. The brain is organized in a way that allows us to recognize the experience of knowing that we're counting something. Also it suggests that when we think we know something, we're really just experiencing a small part of the knowledge we possess. And also a real problem for the brain is not so much how much we know, but rather, how much we know that we don't know. I think the real problem is how much of the knowledge that we have is not only knowledge we don't have but knowledge that we have but that we don't realize that we have like you said. Yes. Okay, but the part of, about counting your brain cells sounds crazy. Um, speaking of crazy, and to and to clarify what it means that the library is an infinite combination of 25 symbols where every book contains, um, I think, 410 pages, 
So every fiction or nonfiction book that was ever known or could have been known is contained in the library, along with books of nonsensical gibberish, right? Because it's every combination. So it'd be possible, let's say, to find a book like Don Quixote in there, right? But then every possible different version of Don Quixote sometimes with just one letter different or transposed would be there. Every possible translation would be there also somewhere. Every commentary and commentaries or commentaries of Don Quixote would be there. So parts of the story is about how the librarians react to this, you know, madness of infinity, infinite mad, of infinite uh, books, really. Um, some of these uh, librarians forming cults to find the canonical works, uh, if they can find them, and some trying to cull the nonsensical or nearly identical books uh, from the library, but then realizing that it was you know, fruitless and it was impossible to do something like that. It's like the library is a kind of mirror, showing you how little you know. It is sad that there are only so many books that you can read, but the number of books is so much bigger than that. You could read all the books that have been written by all the people who have ever lived and you'd still be only a tiny fraction of the number of books that have been written. There would be a book that would be a summary of every book. Uh, probably a pretty poor summary, I would think. It's about the semiotics. How we name things. How we collect and organize knowledge. Is it possible to name something and find every single thing that name is referring to? It's kind of like the cultural semiotics in that we have an idea of the library as a collection of knowledge, but there's also a lot of organizing of the information and a lot of it is useless. The infinite amount of information is one of the problems, because there is no limit to it. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There is a limit to the amount of information that the human brain can process with a finite amount of time. But it's only practically uh, infinite from a human perspective. Um, I would imagine an AI could process it. Yes. It's a, it's a great story. A lot of ideas packed into a few pages. Um, let me wrap up the discussion of this story. Uh, but before we move on to the next story, a final quote from the story. Um, so what I'd like to read is, this is where the narrator, narrator is speaking, giving you a sense of this, uh, an overall sense of this towering library. So I'm going to quote here. Um, so he says, like all men of the library, I have traveled in my youth. I have wandered in search of a book, perhaps the catalog of catalogs. Now that my eyes can hardly decipher what I write, I am preparing to die just a few leagues from the hexagon in which I was born. Once I am dead, there will be no lack of pious hands to throw me over the railing. My grave will be the fathomless air. My body will sink endlessly in decay and dissolve in the wind generated by the fall which is infinite. I say that the library is unending. All right, so that's the end of the quote there, which is pretty cool. Um, but we'll end our discussion there with that, with that particular story, uh, with that quote about this unending library. Uh, up next, let's discuss the Garden of Forking Pass. Uh, in this story, there's a, a lot going on too. Um, the plot is set during World, world War I. Um, the narrator is a spy for the Germans. He is of Chinese ancestry and has found out the English have discovered um, uh, have discovered and have sent a counter agent named Richard Madden, I believe is his name, to kill him. Um, but the narrator has one last piece of information to give to the Germans, which is the location of a site for the Germans to bomb. 
in a town called Albert in France, and that name's important. Um, because uh, he has, the reason is because he has no way to communicate with the Germans. He comes up th with this idea of killing someone named Albert, which is a town he wants the Germans to bomb. Um, so he thinks that the Germans will read about him in the paper and realize he was signaling to them the name of the city to bomb. They'll read about him killing someone named Albert. Very convoluted. But it gets even more so. Um, the man the narrator uh, finds to kill is, a, is an expert on Chinese culture who lives in a house that has a garden of forking paths. Um, this is the man named Albert that we talked about. And, and when he meets, the narrator meets Albert, he tells him he is familiar with the narrator's um, grandfather named Zhu Pin. The grandfather wrote a novel called, oh, <laughs> coincidentally, The Garden of Forking Paths that um, Albert has been studying. And what is unique about this novel is that it was never, quote, finished. That it's unfinished is not what really makes it unique, though. Um, what is unique is that it's many, many, many manuscripts of many different variations of the story. And so in reality, the, the story uh, is a book, a, a book of forking paths. This is a wonderful story. It is one that is very much about the world as a labyrinth. You have this idea of the world as a labyrinth and the idea that the more you look at it, the more you find out there's a maze inside of a maze inside of a maze. In that theory, everything that can happen does happen, but in a parallel universe, or perhaps in many parallel universes. I wonder if the amnesia is not a little bit like a quantum jump. Wait, um, amnesia is like a quantum jump in the many worlds hypothesis? Yes, it is. And what I like about the many worlds hypothesis is as a multiple theory of consciousness. The many worlds hypothesis is that consciousness is a quantum jump. It is a jump from one world to another. Okay, and, and, and we've talked before about your ideas of consciousness, consciousness in previous episodes. Um, actually, uh, in the next book we will be di discussing, um, about I hope to dive in. I hope to dive into these into not into theories of consciousness in general and what consciousness actually is. Well, one way to explain the many worlds hypothesis is that the universe is a computer. It's a supercomputer. That there are many parallel universes, and that the universe is a computer. And what the universe does is it goes through many, many different possibilities. And then, the one that it chooses is the universe that you are in. So, it's a computer program. It's a simulation. And what the simulation does is it explores all these other possibilities and then it chooses the one that it wants. You mean metaphorically it chooses? Yes. So, it's like the algorithm of the universe is like the algorithm of a computer. And then, each possibility is a world. Yes, it's a computer program. And when you do the simulation, you go through all the possibilities. So I have to believe that Borges would have known about um, even at that time he wrote it, some of the ideas coming out of quantum mechanics. Um, maybe not the many worlds theory, um, but you know this is a very, I think, typical Borges story as it incorporates some of his most common themes. Time, randomness, uh, labyrinths, infinity, coincidences, etc. 
Um, but let's talk about coincidence. And by the way, I, I don't think he was trying to write it in a magically realistic style, per se, but, but many of his stories presage Gabriel Marquez a little bit. Um, and uh, so as far as coincidence, the, the main coincidence in this story is that the, quote, Albert, the main character finds, um, which is also the name of the city he wants to signal to the Germans, just happens to be just happens to be an expert on the novel by his grandfather, the, the main character's grandfather. I think Borges really believed in coincidence. He believed in the magic of the universe. He believed in randomness and he believed that the universe was a labyrinth that people were lost in. He also believed that people could find their way out of this labyrinth. He believed in the possibility of a nonlinear universe, where there is a multiplicity of possibilities. This is very different than the classical universe which is a linear, deterministic, two-dimensional universe. I think Borges uses coincidence, perhaps, as a metaphor for the way in which thought, language, and time are interconnected, and how such connections can be used to open up alternative pathways to understanding. This is an issue of particular interest to any philosopher of mathematics. Borges focuses on the nature of infinity and infinity as a possibility, and how the difference between this possibility and actuality can be clarified by means of a paradox. I liken it to a mathematical paper by the mathematician Kurt Gödel. Borges is implying the nature of self-reference and the nature of infinite sets. He's implying that a set can be said to be infinite in one sense, but not in another. The difference between these two senses of infinity is clarified by means of a paradox, which Borges, I believe, is influenced by the mathematician David Hilbert. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I think the philosophy of mathematics is definitely another theme of much of Borges. I'm pretty sure that the philosophy of mathematics, in particular the philosophy of non-Euclidean geometry, is what has kept me interested in mathematics all these years. The philosophy of mathematics, in general, is a very interesting subject. There's plenty of great philosophy in math, and plenty of math in philosophy, but I think the best way to approach it is to separate it into three separate fields, logic, math, and philosophy. Logic is what's used to make arguments. Logic is the basis of mathematics. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you often hear that physics, some people will say that physics is um, applied math, but I also think that while that, that's true, that math is is also applied philosophy, philosophy, um, your your logic example, but also that philosophy is applied physics. So in a way, physics is applied math, which is applied philosophy, which is applied physics, and so on and so on. So it's like circular um, that application there. Yes. Okay. So why is it called a garden? I think the garden is the writer, the reader, and the book. It's a story about a garden in which each path leads to the other, and the paths that are taken and those that are left are, in some way, the same. The writer and the reader are one because of the infinite possibilities. The garden represents the labyrinth of the imagination, the garden of the infinite. It is a complex labyrinth that has a tree in the middle, a tree of life, and it has a road that splits into an infinity of roads. I believe the garden represents the vast, labyrinth, and infinitely recursive universe of language. In this garden, all paths lead to all paths, and yet, there are no paths, because there are no forks. 
at the end of the garden, we are no more than the traces of our own thoughts, and yet, we think. We are the witness and the record of our own thoughts. The garden is a place of immense beauty, a place of enormous thought, a place of infinite possibility. It is the place where everything is possible, and where everything is nothing. The garden is a place of infinite thought, of infinite beauty, and of infinite possibilities. Alright, um, on a different note, this novel that his grandfather wrote is, quote, unfinished. That it has many variations reminds me of all those, of, of all the stories and games that are popular. You know, the, the choose-your-own-story or ending. Um, you can't help to, uh, to think about these types of choose-your-own-adventure or choose-your-own-ending stories like um, the one on Netflix, um, Black Mirror has an episode like that. And really every time you play a video game, you are choosing a different path. I think it would be fun if this book was a video game. There's a game called Play Gink. It's a game where you basically try to make the most virulent pathogen that you can. You have to control how it spreads and how it affects people. It's pretty interesting. I think that that's a pretty good way to think about the choose your own, endings and endings in general. I think a lot of us are cautious and think about what we are choosing in a lot of different ways. I think the reason we like choosing our own path games and stories is because in reality we are never going to be able to know what would have happened if we chose another path. I think that's why I enjoy these types of stories. I had, I had never thought of this before, but it reminds me of Robert Frost's um, The Road Not Taken. I think that's true, because it's easy to look back and say, oh, I could have been this or done that. That's easy. You have to pick something, and then you have to stick with it. You have to make choices. And you have to take the consequences of it, which may not always be what you wanted. Okay, so let's make a choice now and end our discussion of this story. I leave it with this quote from the story. Um, um, so here, towards the end of the story, Albert is explaining what he believes the novel of the main character's grandfather is about. Um, he says, and this is a quote here, um, The Garden of Forking Pass is a picture, incomplete yet not false, of the universe such as Zhu Pin conceived it to be, different from Newton and Schopenhauer. Your ancestor did not think of time as absolute and uniform. He believed in an infinite series of times, in a dizzily growing, ever-spreading network of diverging, converging, and parallel times, this web of time, the strands of which approach one another, bifurcate, intersect, or ignore each other throughout, through the centuries, embraces every possibility. We do not exist in most of them, in some you exist, and not I, while in others I do, and you do not, and yet others, both of us, exist. So that's the end of the quote, which I thought was pretty, pretty much summed up um, <laughs> the, the main theme of the story. Um, so, okay, so in, in this last story we will discuss today um, is maybe my favorite Borges story, probably. It's called Funes the Memorias. Um, this story is about memory. Um, so again, we have the theme of the infinite, an infinite maze of memory. The, sto the story uh, narrator tells about a young peasant who, after falling off a horse and hitting his head, is blessed and cursed with remembering everything, everything, unending memory. So remembering every last detail of everything. Um, so 
like for him to remember a day, it could take him a whole day because he would remember every element of that day. Um, he could remember every detail of any object and remember an object would be to remember not only every detail of that object, but every time he thought or saw that object and everything related to that object, including every breath he took while looking at that object. So an ever-growing, um, interconnected collection of memories building upon themselves towards the infinite. Um, at least that, that's really how I would sum it up and how I would describe this, this memory he talks about in his story. Um, because it's, it's important to understand what Borges is really describing in this character Funes. Um, it's not just, quote, a really good memory. It's a memory that is all-consuming. Well, it's one of my favorite Borges stories as well, Bill, and I think you've probably picked out some of the key elements there. And, to me, it's also a story about immortality. It's a story about someone who has no capability of forgetting, and that has fascinated me since I read it many years ago. It's interesting, because part of the curse is that he is cursed to never forget. So he has this curse of remembering everything. His memory is infinite, and it's a curse and I think what Borges is trying to do is sort of contrast that with other characteristics of immortality, which, really, immortality is a curse. I really enjoyed this story. Funes actually reminds me of Sherlock Holmes. What does that mean? Because he has that ability. Actually his ability is far more than Sherlock's. Sherlock really has a fantastic memory. He remembers every detail, but Funes can remember everything. Even the smallest detail. What fascinated me in the story is that Funes is literally helpless. He is trapped in a memory that he cannot escape. He's paralyzed by his memories. He can do nothing. He is literally paralyzed by his memories. He is frozen in time. I think that's why Funes reminds me of Sherlock Holmes. Even though Funes is paralyzed by his memories, he is actually more clever than Sherlock Holmes. How so? Yeah, because Sherlock's memory is episodic. He remembers facts. But Funes remembers everything, every fact, and every piece of information. So, he can combine facts in creative ways. Right. He can make connections that other people cannot make. Well I think it's interesting, the infinite labyrinth of memory. You know, I remember, and it's a kind of strange memory, which is that when I first heard this, and I kind of researched it a bit, I remembered thinking that Funes the Memorius was a precursor, or maybe an inspiration, for the character of Spock in Star Trek. So as I read that story, I sort of imagined Leonard Nimoy playing the character of Funes. Okay, that's kind of a weird connection. I, I agree with that, but, it, but it's valid and kind of humorous. I can see the story like we talked about before as related to magical realism. Maybe it's because I'm a big Gabriel Garcia Marquez fan so I can't get enough magical realism. Okay, let's get back to the point of having boundless memory as a curse. Um, Marie, you related, re you related it to being immortal and, immortal and something that would be simmer, similarly um, uh, undesirable. Because you need to be able to forget. In order to learn something new, you need to be able to forget unimportant details. Uh, yes, and in, in fact, in the story, Funes got to the point where he couldn't comprehend that the dog he saw at night was the same dog with the same name as he saw earlier in the day because his memory made 
too many different distinctions. Um, so although it would be biologically impossible to have an impossible to have an infinite memory like Funes, there's probably evolutionary reasons why humans evolved the ability to forget things um, that we that we do. So forgetting is important. Right. I want to say that his memory was not like a notebook. It was like one of those boxes that housed the infinity of mirrors in the funereal funhouses of our childhood. That's beautifully put. Knowledge was like an endless maze in which, at each and every step, he met himself, knew what he already knew, and became aware of his own incoherence. He's trapped within his own mind. It would be like a torrent of useless information which surged uselessly against his will through the channels of his brain eroding his will to do anything. So a memory that is paralyzing. Um, by the way, we didn't talk about it, but when Funes was thrown from the horse causing his memory abilities, he was also physically paralyzed. So he has a memory that's paralyzing his mind, matching what happened to him physically. Metaphorical paralysis. Maybe, uh, maybe. Uh, the, the debilitating effect of having an infinite memory is the same as an eroding, an eroding memory in the elderly, or specifically in an Alzheimer's patient. So, I mean, really, could the effect be the same of having a disease that destroys the ability to remember be comparable to having an affliction that makes one not able to forget anything? So could the end result be the same for, like, both uh, conditions? Right. A memory that erodes the mind. Destroyed by the weight of one's own memory. I think that's the literal message here, that forgetting is as important as remembering. So then the most important thing to remember about Funes and this story is to remember to forget. Yeah, so um, let's leave it there at that great point. Um, so, uh, any last thoughts? Well, it was great to talk to you all again. Yes, it's been fun. Alright, um... So next time we have a pretty exciting book to discuss. Um, it's relatively short. It's the classic piece of nonfiction called The Doors of Perception um, by Aldous Huxley. Uh, it was written in 1954. Uh, it's about his experimenting with hallucinogenics. hallucinogenics. Um, but Huxley brings up a lot of interesting topics. Um, we will not be focusing so much on the drugs per se, but uh, but specifically what he has to say about consciousness. I'm, I'm hoping that we'll use the book just as maybe a, an unconventional um, jumping off point to talk about the hard problems of what consciousness is and everything and anything that, that there is maybe to say about consciousness um, or the definitions of con consciousness. Um, but, you know, especially in regards to artificial intelligence. Sounds fun. Yeah, so that's it. And I want to thank you both for a great conversation today. And for everyone listening. Um, uh, so until next time, we will catch you later.